Julia Gerlach, Managing Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by Topcon Agriculture. I encourage you to subscribe to the series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they're released. Retired ag engineer Randall Reeder worked at Ohio State University since 1979 and managed the Hoytville Research Station in Northwest Ohio for many years, where work was done comparing ridge-till, strip-till, no-till, and conventional tillage. In this podcast, Randall talks with no-till farmer editor Frank Lesseter about those research trials, how he got interested in compaction and controlled traffic, and some surprising results they found when they compared subsoiling with no-till. Randall also spent a lot of time working with growers in Australia, and he explains why controlled traffic made such a big impact there. Where'd you grow up? You grew up on a farm? Yeah, grew up on a farm in the middle of West Virginia, uh, near Weston, West Virginia. We had a few steers. I grew up, uh, after we got a tractor, that was my favorite thing to do, was driving a tractor and mowing and baling hay. And and, uh, anything to do with the tractor is what I liked. Well, that kind of sounds like me. We had a team of Belgian horses, and we had a tractor, and I never wanted to drive the horses. Now I regret that. <laughs> yeah. So, where'd you go to school? Well, Weston High School and then West Virginia University. Studied agriculture engineering. I got both a bachelor's and a master's degree there. And then what happened after that? Well, I went to the University of Arizona as a research assistant for a year and a half working on cotton. Uh, that was quite an education <laughs> and, and a good education. Then got offered a position as an engineer with the West Virginia Department of Agriculture, and I worked there eight years through the 70s, and then came to Ohio State University, uh, started in January 1979. I've been at Ohio State University. I'm still, now I'm an emeritus faculty. I retired in uh, 2011. Uh, but they still let me have an office here in the Agriculture Engineering Building. I still do a few things for the department. And of course, I'm still involved with our uh, Ohio No-Till Council and our Conservation Tillage Conference. So uh, as an ag engineer, how did you get involved with no-till? Well, my first work here was with ridge tillage. Hmm. And we had a research project uh, in northwest Ohio. Uh, I always refer to it as Hoytville, a small community near there at the research station. And that project then, uh, we transitioned part of that ridge till into no-till. And those plots continued. Well, I was managing them then. Well, until about the time I retired. We had strip till and we had conventional tillage, which was chisel plowing, and no-till. And that was continuous no-till. Sure. We had continuous corn, continuous soybeans, and also corn-soybean rotation. Uh, we just started to get into cover crops. We added to the plots, but then I retired, and it just never. We just never got it followed up. Uh, once I retired, it just uh, kind of dropped by the wayside. But cover crops are coming on like gangbusters in terms of importance, and I hope popularity because they add so much to the no-till system. Right. Well, what's interesting on cover crops is nationally, uh, 
Confirmation Technology Information Center, and Sarah showed that about 8% of the farmers nationwide are using cover crops. But then when you look at what we have on our no-till benchmark study, 80% of our people are using cover crops. So the no-tillers seem to have caught on in a big way. Well, I think it's becoming clear that cover crops are a key part of success to continuous no-till. Cover crops contribute so much to it. In fact, I just wrote this in a no-till news page that's going to come out the middle of the month. Uh, one of our key farmers said that thinking about no-till ought to try cover crops first for two or three years, get used to managing cover crops, and then go continuous no-till. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. That was what? an interesting concept. Uh, Jim Horman was sitting there also, and he agreed with, with that. Now, that <laughs> we don't want people to, to delay their decision three years before going into no-till, right. but it just means if you're still on the fence or you're thinking, oh, there's no way I'm going to ever go continuous no-till, go ahead and try cover crops. Uh, get accustomed to managing cover crops, and, and then... Uh, go into no-till. The farmer I'm describing is uh, Nathan Browsey, and he got his start with uh, with strip-till, mm-hmm. which you folks definitely support. And I think right. a lot of no-till farmers start that way, uh, get into strip-till, and then after a while, they may decide, heck, I don't need to buy the strip-till. This is working so good, I'll just, uh, just go straight no-till. What's interesting there is... Uh, um a strip tiller who builds these berms in the fall is fine. We have some strip tillers who build them in the spring. And if you had a year where you never got your berms built for some reason, these guys are smart enough to know they can go in there and no-till that year, even if they want to go back to strip till. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So uh, Ohio State, uh, I mean, Ohio's been a big leader in no-till, and the whole university's been behind it. But we had some states where the agronomy people early on were against no-till, and the ag engineers were the champions of um, no-till. Well, (laughs) I think I'll agree with that. Uh, We were fortunate to have Glover Triplett uh, here. Started the research in 1962. In fact, those plots are still going at Worcester and also at Hoytville, the Northwest Branch Station, and at uh, our South Charleston Station, which is in the southwest part of the state. So those are continuous since since early 1960s. And then you got Mm -hmm. farmers... Like Bill Richards, who was a young farmer, jumped right in uh, with that, uh, got information from Glover Triplett, and, and of course he's developed into a great no-till spokesman and farmer, and they're sure. still obviously no-tilling. Right. I spent some time in Ohio in June in Holmes County, and I sat down with Bill Haddad, who had worked for uh, Sagenta and everything. It's fascinating how he saw the benefits of no-till with the Amish people. Bill was right there in the beginning also, was one of those no-till pioneers. Right. And very creative. So, uh, Ridge-till, it, uh, what happened to Ridge-till? How, why didn't it catch on more? My comment on that was uh, two things happened. One was the John Deere 750 drill, which made drilling soybeans in seven-and-a-half-inch rows uh, so much easier. And, of course, the second thing was Roundup. Right. So those those two things, I think, made the big difference. And and 
I think weather was an issue, although we always talked about, well, if you can't get in to cultivate in June before the corn gets too high, well, plan B is to use chemical weed control. And I think you alluded to it earlier. If you if you can't get strip-till done, uh, just go ahead and no-till. Right. <laughs> right. So, uh, but I think those two things, I think another factor uh, was the ridges that usually you had to make some adjustments uh, to tire, so, yeah, tire spacings, right, right. and that was somewhat of a limitation. The interesting thing on that was because I was doing research on compaction and controlled traffic, which is what you have with ridge tail. They didn't right. call it that, but right. you had to drive between the ridges. You probably don't remember this, but the very first one of your no-till conferences uh, where you had an overflowing crowd in Indianapolis, uh, I wasn't on. I wasn't on the agenda. I was in the audience, and somebody raised a point about compaction, and said, "Oh my golly, how do we solve compaction?" And I raised my hand in the audience, and I said two words: controlled traffic. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, uh, I've been preaching controlled traffic ever since, but it, it just uh, hadn't caught on the way it should. And, and when you think about it, you're twenty some years later. Almost every tractor has the uh, technology built into it to go to uh, control traffic. In other words, auto steering right. within an inch. So it would be a, a no-brainer for farmers with new equipment like that to say, "Well, yeah, why not? Why not go to control traffic? At least think about it." That's that's the way right. I phrase right. it. Right. Uh, you've got the equipment that can do it. Now all you have to do is, and it's still a challenge, getting all the, the widths to match up, decide whether it's going to be a 30-foot corn head or a 40-foot corn head, and then everything else has to match up on the multiple widths. Yeah, and that was a, that was a problem with ridge tours. Most of them tried to get on 120-inch wheel spacing. It's tough to do with a planter and a tractor and a combine and everything. Yes. Uh, one that did do it here was Nate Andre. Tire spacing, everything was single tires. On I think of it this way: you had a what was probably an oversized tractor for the situation, but a white four-wheel drive tractor with the outside duals. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the best way to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so those the wheels were on ten-foot spacing, and his equipment was all twenty-foot width. So it was a ideal situation for him. What I remember back in the uh, 70s, we started no-till farmer in 72, in the late 70s or early 80s. We had a bunch of no-tillers at the time who just kind of bad-mouthed ridge till. They didn't have much use for it, and they would talk about it. But now you look at strip till today, and I've written about this a couple times. Strip till has got about three or four things that ridge tillers were doing. They're basically building a ridge or a berm. They were deep banding fertilizer. They were having controlled traffic. What's led to strip till? I think got started with ridge till. Well, that that makes sense. Yeah, it's it's not a six or eight inch high ridge. It's only one or two inches, and by right. springtime, there's not much of a hump, right. not much of a ridge left there. But it it still does. And this is the way I always promoted it. I'm sure you folks do too. With strip till, you're doing tillage right where the in most cases, right where the corn plant needs it or can benefit from it. Mm-hmm. But the other two-thirds of the ground is not tilled. So you've got a nice, firm surface there with residue cover, and you can even plant cover crops on it. I know 
I imagine several strip-till farmers still do this. After harvesting soybeans, you would uh, drill a cover crop across the whole field, uh, or if you wanted to, you could leave out <laughs> a row where the strip is going to be. Sure. But then you go in and, and do the strip-till. So you've got the, the strip ready for next spring, and you've also got a cover crop growing in between those strips. So I talked to Ray Rawson up in Michigan the other day, and he was he's always been a zone-till proponent, kind of developed a system with the three coalers, the lead coalers, and two on the edge. And he's still running that system today. But what they're doing is they're, they're working a little more tillage than some no-tillers, but they're planting twin rows on that. It's worked for him all these years. Well, I think uh, we're doing a little bit of twin row work out at Farm Science Review, and I, I think there's a lot of experimentation going on uh, with farmers, and I think that's one of them where you can put twin rows, right? And, uh, get a little higher population and give some advantages. So Ohio seems to be a leader in no-till. What's what's the reason for that? Is it? I mean, then you've you've got it really big on some of your flat land, and you got it really big on some of your hilly land. Well, it started, and around Worcester would be considered sure. hilly ground uh, with sloping and typically well-drained soils. It was a little bit uh, later to catch on in northwest Ohio, where it is flat and poorly drained, where you. Any good farm has to have drain tile uh, installed. But I think the, uh, well, extension was involved early. Glover Triplett was uh, a key person to it. He, he and Bill Haddad, they went around the state with a planter <laughs> demonstrating and showing farmers how to do it and uh, actually doing the planting for them. So uh, those examples, is uh, I think, is the best way that we get no-till, or the way that we got no-till. Uh, at one time, Knox County, which isn't too far from Worcester, sure. <laughs> was the uh, the world's no-till capital, something like that. Right. And they were a leading county. The SWCD and our county agent there worked together on it. And uh, But here's what's happened, Frank, in some of these cases, and that's an example of it, that once you had those key individuals die or move away in many cases the no-till dropped out too it's mm -hmm. just uh, it's hard to keep it going without key people continuing to showcase it and promote it and teach keep the education going on uh, the advantages of no-till and, and how to do it how to do it successfully yeah so tell me a little about the Ohio No-Till Council you've been involved in. It seems to me this is one of the more successful state groups around the country on No-Till. Well, I appreciate that. I think you're right. I know Pennsylvania has a great No-Till alliance. But we have we put on programs. One that we do is our annual conference in December. We typically get about 200 there. In fact, we've got the governor invited this year and hope we can, hope we can fit Good. it into his schedule. Uh, governor DeWine uh, is a farm boy. Um, and we've got uh, good good speakers. We've got Mark Anson coming this year. Uh, we also do a field day at Dave Brandt's farm in early April and then a summer field day in August. So those are the three main events. Uh, we're expanding the August situation a little bit. Instead of being an all-day field day at one location, we're going to do a, an evening 
event, like from sure. 6 to 9 at one farm, and then the next morning we're going to do it at another farm, in this case about 100 miles away, and we may even do a third event that second evening. So mm-hmm. it appears that there's a lot of interest, but farmers are more likely to be able to go to something that lasts three or four hours rather than committing all day to it. Right. Well, particularly particularly in the middle of summer or in August, they can always yeah. they can always give you an excuse of something else they just got to do. <laughs> right. Uh, well, there, and there's a lot of meetings to choose from, a lot of events right, to choose right. from. Yeah, in the winter time, I, yeah, we'll go to St. Louis and spend four days there in January. Right. That's great. Well, it's been interesting with us with the NOTO conference because. Most years we get a pretty decent number of walk-ins, but some years you don't. And one of the, over the years, I think what's helped us best with walk-ins is when there's been miserable weather. I mean, this is in January. You still got to get there, but some people at the last minute would stay home and haul grain or do something else if the weather was good. But if it's bad, they'll come to the meeting. And I remember once in Des Moines, we had a guy who said he had said to his wife that morning, I'm going down to the no-till conference, and while I'm gone for four days, make sure you break the ice in the livestock watering troughs. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know you had a couple of situations, Frank, where it was so cold that farmers with livestock just had to stay home and take care of broken water pipes. <laughs> right, right, right. But but at the same time but same time others say it's yeah. too cold to be outside, I'm going yeah. to the no truck meeting. Yeah. Right. For for farm programs and farm shows like our Farm Science Review, the weather's a tricky thing. Yeah. Uh, sometimes at Farm Science Review we get better attendance if it's raining. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's what I think. Right. So uh, one of the things you did years ago is you took a sabbatical and went to Australia and really looked at controlled traffic, didn't you? That was a great experience. Uh, Four months in Australia back in, well, 20 years ago, 1999. At the time, uh, there was a company there called Beeline that was actually one of the beginners of controlled traffic because of uh, auto steering. In Australia, it made a huge difference, and it wasn't just the controlled traffic part of it. Here's a key for them. Think it's mainly wheat, and their practice was to farm uh, round and round and round the field. So you just start sure. on the outside and work your way to the middle. So without any kind of, without any uh, row markers of any sort like that, there was a lot of overlap. So it wasn't unusual. This is what I heard heard them say to have 20 to 25% overlap, not just on seeding of wheat, but that would also apply to applying uh, pesticides. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the fact that they switched to controlled traffic, it meant they went back and forth, just like we're accustomed to doing here with our uh, corn and soybeans. And without eliminating the overlaps was a huge advantage. So they they were getting a payback within a year or two. <laughs> wow. On on the whole system. And that was back in the days when what a system might cost fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. So I learned about that. Uh learned some things about uh another I guess you call it shocking concept was uh working with Jeff Tolberg at Queensland in uh northeast Australia. Uh, that I'll, I'll give you a specific example of a field. Uh, 
with a gentle slope, about a 3% slope, and they had berms, altogether six or seven berms, uh, terraces, but they were farm across terraces uh, on that field. What they found out was that with no-till, continuous no-till, they were better off farming up and down the slope. Uh, keep in mind, this was only about 2 or 3% slope. Right. Uh, but that meant that all the water stayed between the rows. There was no accumulation uh, runoff like you would have with terraces. Mm-hmm. Uh, because you always have a breakthrough. Uh, and anywhere you have concentrated flow, you've got problems. So the, And the fact that you had residue cover meant that uh, as the water flowed down between these two rows, that the residue, it might erode for a short distance, maybe a few feet, but then you'd have corn stalks or other residue that would stop it and essentially form a dam and then it would go farther. So that was one thing I learned. Now that never, I don't know if that concept ever caught on here, but it was a way to eliminate terraces in that case with continuous no-till. You didn't really need them. I bet there'd be situations like that today. Now we don't have terraces here in Ohio, very, very few, not like Iowa or Nebraska. So but it's, I think it's interesting that if you eliminate the tillage, if you go to continuous no-till, especially with cover crops, where you've got something out there 12 months of the year, then you may find out that the cost of the terraces don't pay at all because you've practically eliminated erosion. Yeah. You mentioned Bill Richards earlier, and we, we've done – I've been to his place a number of times, as you, as you have, and we've done some stories on him. But he said when he got out of college – the professor at Ohio State had told him the only real reason to till was to control weeds. So that got him to thinking, and then atrazine came there, and uh, he basically went to no-till because he figured out a way to control weeds. And, you know, he was a leader in controlled traffic, too, and probably in the whole U.S. had worked with the soil engineers from Auburn. But uh, it's interesting how he got into no-till because of weed control. And they still have good soil in the Scioto River bottom, a little more background. Right. The Richards Farm is just south of Columbus, and uh, it's mostly gravelly, well-drained, and he's got he's got plenty of water. He's got a source for irrigation, so he's got three-pivot irrigation mm-hmm. uh, in fields, three pivots. And a little more background, he was named as Chief of Soil Conservation Service, SCS, under the first George Bush. Right. And I think it transitioned to NRCS while he was there. And I remember he introduced the term soil quality, which is now soil health. Uh, but that was one of the things he was pushing and really pushed no-till. And, and you would know this, uh, made a lot of progress in terms of increasing the no-till acres. In oh, absolutely. Acres. Right. And in the time he was with NRCS there from about... 89 to 92. We'll rejoin Frank and Randall in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, Topcon Agriculture, for supporting our Nuttall Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. From planning to precision machine control to NORAC boom height control monitoring and mapping to data management, Topcom Agriculture offers a total set of solutions to maximize your agronomic plan. To find out how to make the most of your 4R nutrient stewardship with precision technology that is unmatched in ease of use, visit topconpositioning.com forward slash 
Grown Solutions to learn more about how Topcom Agriculture Application Solutions make agronomy work for you. Before we get back to our conversation, Frank is going to share a little known no-till farmer fact. A lot of questions come up among no-tillers as the fact that we are continuing to see a bigger and bigger horsepower tractors on the market. It reminds me of having gone to the 1976 Farm Progress Show and seeing a 650 horsepower two-engine articulated Steiger tractor that was on display. With 30-inch rows, you could pull a 260-row no-till planter behind this tractor to fully utilize all the power. At that time, the tractor, which was a real monster, had a price tag of around $100,000 and would be around $425,000 in value in 2018. And now we'll get back to the conversation with Frank and Randall Reeder. So when you look at Ohio farmers that are not no-tilling, what's the main reason they give? Oh, gosh. I... <laughs> I don't know. It's just it's just puzzling. Uh, let me uh, maybe this is a kind of a parallel example. We had a lot of prevent planting uh, sure. this year. Uh, Wood County, uh, Bowling Green, North, Northwest Ohio, I think had more percentage of prevent acres maybe than any other county in the country. But our whole northwest part of Ohio was a lot of prevent plant acres. The uh, county commissioners allocated money to farmers to plant cover crops. This was in June of this year. Uh, mm-hmm. And believe it or not, they had money left over. Wow. And the county agent told me a couple of weeks ago, uh, he drove down here, he was shocked at the amount of farmland up there that's already been tilled a couple of times. It's just as smooth as can be, ready to, ready to plant next spring. But it's going to be susceptible to wind erosion all winter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty flat, but they'll still have some uh, water erosion also. But it's right. just shocking when they had an opportunity all the time this year. They could have planted a great mix of cover crops in July and had a great cover and been ready to no-till into it next year, either uh, kill it or uh, plant green. It had been a fantastic situation. So why do farmers not no-till? I, geez, I don't know. It, let me give you an example, and I think I used this once at, at the National No-Till Conference. Imagine if John Deere, back in 1937, had invented Roundup instead of the steel moldboard plow. <laughs> now, but think about it this way. If you don't have to go back to 1837. You go back 100 years or whatever. If no-till with Roundup and all the other technology that we have today, in other words, every, the whole system had been in place, that, that that would have been the conventional system. Right. The, we talk about conventional tillage, but that would have been for 100, 150 years. That would have been the conventional system. And then here's what would have happened. Uh, any farmer, a neighbor, who said, well, you know, I've heard about this new John Deere steel plow. I think I'm going to take a chance on it and, and the risk, and I'll just I'll just plow, and neighbors are going to scorn him and, and wonder what the heck's he doing out there. Uh, so bottom line of that is it's 
a lot of it is a mindset. We've got the no-till system. We know how it works. A lot of farmers are doing it, and they're eager to share their experiences with anybody, including their neighbors and anybody across multiple states. And and yet, it's still hard to convince them. Whereas, if the situation was reversed, and if getting out the plow or any aggressive tillage system, if that was the unknown, then those people would have been the maverick rather than the no-till right, farmer. Right. You're talking about the plow, and it reminded me in the early days, uh, plant pathologists, their solution to everything was plow it down. If you got diseases oh. in no-till, you got you need to moldboard plow it into the ground. And recently someone told me there's still some plant pathologists that believe in that. Oh, we had that 10 years ago. I made one of them come on a, one of our programs and forced him to use the title <laughs> uh, How to Control Disease Without Plowing. <laughs> so I read something, uh, four ways of controlling weeds. Number one was tillage that he listed, and, and number four was cover crops. Mm-hmm. And my comment on that, cover crops should have been up there at number one. Right. <laughs> and tillage would have been the fourth one if it had to be there. As, right. As a way to, uh, of course, the two or three in there was uh, a good herbicide program. Right. So I'm not making fun of it, but it was just the way it was listed. At, uh, right. Well, we were talking about Australia, and Australia's got this new unit yeah. out that uh, you run behind the combine and chew up the weed seeds. It seems to me that's kind of a neat idea, but it's also expensive. I don't know if it'll catch on or not, but I know there's a couple places, I think Illinois and Arkansas, that got machines and are looking at it now. Hmm. Well, I know what you're talking about. And I can't yeah, think of the right. name of it. Right. But it is expensive. I think they also remind me of, at times then they they drop a pile of these weed seeds uh, so yeah. it's like, like big round bales across the field you got these piles and then they go right. in and burn them right right uh so uh and then maybe you mentioned that the idea of somehow crushing the seeds yeah that's what they were doing they were crushing it as they go through the combine so that, yeah two different things one is gathering the seeds and putting them in these piles to burn Right. But if, you're right, that takes a lot of power to, right. to crush the seeds. You talked about this county in Ohio where they didn't use all their cover crop money, and, and nobody wants to be in a prevent planting situation. But what it really did is it gave people who were going to do cover crops a head start because they could plant them in July instead of waiting until after corn or soybeans were harvested. Those people that did that may get more out of cover crops this year than they would in a normal year when they plant next spring. Absolutely. We did a program on June 27th, and uh, it was tremendous. The 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 point was... Uh, cover crops for prevent plant acres. That was the right. title of it. And uh, it's recorded, so it's available for anybody to watch that wants to. Of course, this is late for prevent plant. You don't need that information sure. for now, but it's still valuable information to uh, go watch it. Keep in mind, everything was transitioning there at the end of June, uh, so there were maybe a couple of statements that weren't actually correct concerning crop insurance. Right. I'm not sure today that you could say something today about crop insurance, and the USDA might change it by tomorrow. But uh, right. but other than that, the basics, and you make a, a great point that those who did plant cover crops in July or August, 
got tremendous advantage, and our cover crop suppliers were sold out. And another key point, and this was a great move by USDA, uh, instead of the normal not being able to graze or harvest for forage any cover crop till November 1st, they changed it to September 1st. So a lot right. of a lot of farmers were able to plant sorghum sedan grass, for example, and harvest that after September 1st. Uh, we had alfalfa, alfalfa fields that really suffered because of the terrible winter that we had, plus mm-hmm. the wet spring. So even alfalfa and hay was in short supply. So that was another advantage. And that gave crop farmers a chance to uh, make some money off of prevent plant acres and make some money off of cover crops, where normally you don't make any money directly off of a cover crop. Right. So it seems to me that these no-tillers who are really believers in cover crops, and some of them I've I've done eight, nine, ten mixes of different species, and even uh, and you know and it's a, it's a tough year in agriculture not only because of the weather because prices are low and so people are watching their money, <clears throat> but it seems to me that these people who've who've done this and maybe maybe can get seed maybe they can't. But they're still going to put some cover crop in there, even if they went back to using one species such as cereal rye. They are so convinced it's going to work, they're going to put something in there. Right. And and we're getting to the time now, you're uh, October, uh, and and a lot of the harvest is going to be late this year. Exactly, too, which, right. Which delays the time to plant a cover crop right after the combine. Right. So you're getting to a point where... In quite a few cases, cereal rye may be the only viable cover crop right. to use. But those who did put in the mix, 10 to 12 different species, and, and thinking of cover crops, uh, the way it's always expressed to me is that you want a variety in this way. Uh, if you've got one species that grows tall, another one, say, is a medium height, another one that is short, I'm talking about above the ground, and then think below the ground, you've got some species that are shallow-rooted and others like cereal rye that really go down deep. Mm-hmm. If you get that mix, then you got all sorts of advantages. And always include something of flowers. Put in a pound of sunflowers. <laughs> we have right. so much rented ground that that makes the landlords happy to look out there and see <laughs> the yellow flowers in the field. And Other than that, it may look just like weeds. Right, right. So, so we got we got a story we got a story coming in uh, no till that I did, and the guy I think had a ten or twelve um, mix for his cover crops, and I made him go through and tell me why each of these was was being used, and he said just what you did: tall, short, shallow, deep uh, roots for each one. We, uh, you know, we've we've been doing this series for years on what I've learned about no till, and we. The people we feature are really pretty good, are good no-tillers. They know what they're doing. And I was shocked last month. We got an article coming on one right now, and he's out of northeast Indiana. And he didn't get a single no-till acre planted this year. The whole farm is prevent planting. Well, I, I got another one. The president of our Ohio No-Till Council, Jan Lehman, in mm-hmm. Hardin County, kind of west-central Ohio, Uh had some like 3,000 acres, hardly any planted. Definitely yeah. nothing planted on time. 
And I think he was just featured in the Ohio Farm Journal, wasn't he? I, I read that. Yeah, in one of our journals, yes. Yeah. So that's another example. And, uh, he, of course, he took advantage of it. And uh, this will sound like a bad example, but the fact is he had planted cover crops. And the winter was so bad that he did not have decent cover crops uh, to plant into this spring. Uh, uh-huh. cause we we were making the point, and I think this is a valid point, if you had a, a good green cover in the spring, uh, even with the rains here, wet soil and the rains coming every two or three days, that having a growing cover crop was a huge advantage and gave some farmers an opportunity to get in there and plant green when their neighbors who were tilling had zero chance of planting on that same day or that same week. Right. Uh, but the winter the winter and the spring were so bad that even uh, some of our best no-till farmers had failures with the cover crop. So you, you mentioned earlier, uh, probably at the first no-till conference, standing up and talking about uh, controlled traffic and one of the things I remember from the first no-till conference, and I guess it was 1993, is we had Dwayne Beck speaking from Pierre, South Dakota. Yes. And I remember a comment he made. He he said, you guys here in Ohio and Indiana, no-till to get rid of the moisture. In South Dakota, we no-till to keep every drop that falls. <laughs> well, that's right. And Paul Yossett, Nebraska, in other words, the Great Plains area, uh, you're right, it's a totally... Uh, totally different concept. You want to keep the residue. Uh, in fact, so here's one of the contrasts that Dwayne and, and Paul Yasso both make. That for them, when they're planting, they don't want row cleaners. They want they want all that residue to be right there over the row. Whereas here, it's fairly common uh, to use row cleaners so that after the planter goes through, you've got a strip there that's maybe four inches wide with that's bare, <laughs> no, no residue on it, uh, and uh, you're right. It's it that situation lets that row dry out. Of course, they claim uh, that it warms up faster. Well, I don't think it it doesn't make that much difference. Uh, you got a little bit of space where the where the double disc opener goes through, mm-hmm. uh, so it's going to warm up plenty quick anyway and uh, germinate. I think another thing, and this is a general comment about no-till planting, that two farmers plant on the same day. The no-till field two weeks later uh, may just be coming up and may look short and puny, whereas the guy that tilled uh, corn might be a foot tall already. Uh, or at least you've got that contrast. But right. at the end of the season, the no-till crop is often better. So don't worry if you're no-tilling and, and it looks like it's a slow start because it, it doesn't matter. It'll catch up. Right. Well, and part of that is that residue cover. So I asked somebody the other day whether no-tillers did fared better than minimum tillers or conventional tillers in this late planting season and prevent planting or not. And the answer he gave me is he wasn't sure. He thought part of it was luck on what kind of weather you had, but... Do you think no-tillers did any better with the bad situation this year or not? Well, the example I mentioned, if you had a good cover crop, Mm -hmm. it allowed you to plant 
green because that cover crop uh, and see this works it works both ways in a wet year it's nice to have something growing out there like cereal rye or a mix that's going to pull moisture out of the ground right uh, to help it dry out uh, the reverse of that is if you happen to have a dry spring, which doesn't seem to happen very often here in Ohio, uh, then you need to kill that cover crop uh, early so it doesn't suck all the moisture out. Right. Uh, in this year, where it was so wet with rains coming every two or three days, you'd think the field, well, it's going to be dry enough, I can start planting tomorrow morning, and then it would rain. So that just happened over and over so I think the point being that if you had a good cover crop, the rain held off long enough that you could get it planted, like a Dave Brandt. He's got good crops, good field, good field this year. So uh, it worked out good for them. It worked out better than for somebody who didn't have a cover crop and was doing, especially ones who were tilling. tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. If you've been enjoying all the advice and ideas shared by the No-Till authorities featured in the series, then join us in St. Louis from January 7th to 10th for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference. We've lined up more than 30 top-notch no-tillers, agronomists, researchers, and other no-till experts to deliver innovative ideas that can help you get the most of your no-till farming system. Share ideas and get solutions to your toughest no-till challenges during 13 thought-provoking general sessions, 23 expert-led no-till classrooms, 76 farmer-to-farmer roundtable discussions, and two exclusive workshops on soil biology and raising hemp as a specialty crop. The National No-Tillage Conference is 100% money-back guaranteed to bring all the resources, information, and networking opportunities you need to help your no-till operation reach new heights in 2020. Listeners of this podcast can receive a $20 registration discount by visiting notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC and entering code PODCAST20 at checkout. So, Randall, you've been to every one of our no-till conferences since 1993. Yes, isn't that and amazing? You're, you're, you're one of six people who've made every conference. In fact, my, my wife had some health problems a year, a couple of years ago, and I've even missed one of the conferences. But you've hung in there. It would have been easy for you to go to some other meetings or stay home. What made you keep coming? Uh, well, I was. I got to say that I was fortunate that you had the first one in Indianapolis because that was a short drive. So it was convenient to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you put me on the program sometimes, and I was otherwise helping out <laughs> some, uh, some of the speakers. Uh, but the reason I came was well, two or three reasons. One, to get the latest information. Also, to meet some of the top speakers. You mentioned Dwayne Beck, who I probably met uh, at the no-till, and then we ended up having him two or three times at our Conservation Tillies Conference. So meeting and talking, uh, visiting with these top speakers that you brought in, and just visiting with uh, farmers. Uh, when I say top speakers, uh, a lot of the farmers like Rick Clark are in that category. Sure, uh, and I see you had him on. Uh, we had him on our program yeah. last winter, and you picked him up. Uh, we brought him in in August, and we may bring him back for something because he really does does a super job. So right. just the idea, and, and this same thing applies to conferences today. It's hallway conversations. 
listing the speakers. And if you get, from a farmer standpoint, if you get two or three ideas, that may, heck, they may save you a thousand bucks that you were going right. to spend and, or, or a mistake you were going to make. For me, as an educator and as a, as a meeting planner, it gives me an opportunity to uh, uh, to see uh, other speakers that I've never met before, talk to them, and and learn from them, and uh, uh, we can have some fun too. I'm, Marion Calmer's not the only one at National No Till that likes to have fun, so <laughs> <laughs> so we we did all right. So it, it was just an opportunity to cooperate with you folks. That was another aspect of it. I think you, you right, right. Work. Boy, we appreciate that. <laughs> An interesting story came up maybe 10 years ago or so, Well, but from day one, we really preached the benefits of networking in the halls, that you could get a lot out of this. And So maybe 10 years ago or so, I, I took a phone call from a guy in late August, and he was registering for the no-till conference. <clears throat> and I, I signed him up, and then I said, well, I'm kind of sorry to tell you I don't have the whole program done yet, and... Uh, I can't tell you what everybody we got. I'm still got missing a couple holes. And the guy said to me, "I don't care." And so it's not good for my ego. But I asked why. He says, "I'm coming for the networking in the halls. I've been two or three times. I see the value of this. Number one, I know you'll have good topics, and I know you'll have good speakers. Number two, if I thought you had lousy speakers and lousy topics, and I couldn't learn anything, I'm still coming to network in the halls." <laughs> well, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm also reminded of uh, of all the uh, no-till conferences you've been to with us. You had a bad experience one year. You were a speaker, and somebody stole your laptop while we were talking to people, and you never got it back, did you? Oh, I think that was yeah, that was Indianapolis. I think yeah, it was <laughs> it was a it, it was it was not a disaster, so put it that way. So right. well, that's great. I ended ended up all right. Yeah, so uh, I've got a, I've got a new laptop now, thanks to Ohio State University. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and another time I fell off the stage when I was uh, working with the speakers to improve their presentations. <laughs> oh wow, I I forgot that uh, one. I think the I think the uh, portable steps failed me. I think that was the problem. But anyway, so I survived that. So, <laughs> so used to yeah, like that. It's, it's not a, that, those examples are not near as bad as the <laughs> the farmer who showed up a week early for your conference. <laughs> That's right. He was from Illinois and uh, he couldn't find any signs in the hotel about the conference, and the hotel staff didn't know anything. And he finally realized he was a week early. Drove two or three hours back to Illinois, but he did come back the next week, and uh, right, we got a few that's laughs right. out of it. That, that's dedication. You've had some great success stories too of uh, actually people getting engaged and married as well. Yeah, of. that's exactly right. I don't know. If, I don't know if anybody's ever gotten divorced because they came to the meeting, but we have <laughs> had a couple marriages. So one of the things that you've done, you've really done it a lot since you've been retired, but you started it before this. You're kind of a lookalike for Will Rogers, and I think one of the first times we did this was at the National Notowich Conference with you impersonating. Will Rogers, is that right? That's right. I've been doing that now a little over 20 years. Uh, yeah, I remember that presentation, and I wish I could forget about it because I know <laughs> quite a lot of 
like a lot of speakers, I, I wasn't good at all to start with. But that evolved, and some of the best fun, I think I think you, the attendees would agree with this, was uh, we held presidential primaries. Right, uh, right. With the candidates. And I think that was uh, maybe 2000. I know we did it in 2008. Uh, we did yeah, we again. did it several <laughs> times, right? Yeah. And you always yeah. you always manage to get myself or a couple of them or our staffers up on the stage and making fools of us, but we got through it. Oh well. <laughs> so Randall, have you got anything that I missed you'd like to talk about? Well, one serious thing I did. I worked with compaction, so all compaction. Uh, sure. Well, my whole career, and and here's a key point. When we started, it was using the international standard that was established back in the '70s on deep t- deep compactions. We used a 20-ton grain cart. <laughs> that was a 600 bushel grain cart loaded with 20 tons on the axle, and the the process was to then chisel plow, so you eliminated the surface compaction. Well, in several years of that, and we threw in subsoiling, we found that subsoiling was a huge advantage to eliminate that deep compaction. In fact, in Northwest Ohio, we saw, I'm sure I was responsible for selling a lot of subsoilers uh, in that time frame. Well, in 2002, we switched it so that we had continuous no-till sure. along with the chisel plowing and the subsoiling. And here's what switched, Frank. We found out the continuous no-till had higher yields. In other words, it resisted compaction better than where we subsoiled every two or three or four years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes sense when you think about uh, continuous no-till, uh, that that soil has good structure. Uh, it's not. It's not like uh, compare a concrete block to a, a pile of sand. Uh, that uh, that structure in continuous no-till soil is more like the concrete block. It, it's got openings through it. Uh, it's porous. Uh, lets roots grow. Lets water infiltrate. But it's got good structure to support machinery better than soil that's been tilled. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while. That's neat. I remember back in probably late 80s or early 90s, I couldn't figure out why all these no-tillers were running cat challenger tractors with rubber tracks. And I finally decided the reason was that they were innovators. No-tillers are innovators, and they were willing to try something. Ohio State's done some research on tires versus tracks. You can draw many conclusions from it, can't you? (laughs) When the the new radial tires came out, that uh, the uh, legitimate pressure could be as low as 6 PSI, uh, there was a study done here in the 1990s comparing that to the cat track, 24-inch and 36-inch wide tracks, uh, approximately the same size tractors. And the bottom line was that the tires could be just as good as the tracks. Uh-huh. Uh, now, the <laughs> when we're talking about tracks today, there are advantages of tracks. And when you talk about controlled traffic or tire spin between the rows, single track, let's say 20 inches wide, uh, compared to a tire 20 inches wide, that track can support a higher load. Sure. So if if you're using tires, you might have to use split duals, so you'd be trafficking in two-row metals, but that track might let you have everything in, uh, compared to a single tire. Right. So you're only tracking in one uh, row metal instead of 
twice as many. Yeah. Uh, so there are advantages advantages of the rubber tracks. Right. And I know the tire technology just keeps improving. Well, with tires that can support higher loads, I think uh, the big sprayers is a prime example of that, where you might have a 120-foot boom, and you still have to have <laughs> narrow tires that's going to fit between the rows. And uh, right. tire companies are doing that. Well, another problem we had early on was uh, tires on planters and drills were getting were going flat because of uh, cornstalk damage. And with BT stalks, they got tougher, and it could lead to more tire damage. But tire companies have seemed to have solved that problem. Well, they've they've helped. Another thing has come from the equipment company. In fact, our uh, here in our department, uh, they're using combines this fall with what is the Devastator. <laughs> it's yep. just a Right. Kind of a rolling basket under the corn head that uh, devastates the corn stalks, uh, so so they're not sticking up there to punch the tires. Right. So that's right. another thing that uh, that can be done. Uh, think of these corn stalks. I read, oh, you got to use some kind of chemical, and people in in the past have used 28% nitrogen on the corn stalks to get them to deteriorate over the winter. Others use shallow tillage to do the same thing. And it's just it's just unnecessary. A good no-till planter will will handle those corn stalks in good shape next spring, even if you don't use a cover crop. And if you did plant a cover crop, uh, you can you can no-till drill right into those corn stalks with a good drill, uh, and the, the cover crop is going to help those corn stalks deteriorate too. So sure. that that's a practice that's really not necessary. Well, you you look at no-till over the years, and it, it seems to me that it's been easier to no-till soybeans into corn stalks than it has been to no-till corn in the soybean residue. But you look at that soybean residue, and you think, man, it would be easy to plant. But I think people have had more problems with soybean residue than they have with corn residue. Uh, and I, it's a good question of why would that be, uh, number one. Well, first, you have to have the combine set so that you're going to spread that soybean residue over the entire width of the combine. Right, right. Uh, that's that's often a problem. Uh, but the, they've got equipment now, the, the spinners, the fans on the back that can do that. Uh, right. But still, uh, again, go in and plant a cover crop. That'll, that'll help it become uniform and, and give you a better consistent surface across the the whole field for spring planting. Right. Our no-till benchmark survey, which we do every year, I think the one we did last winter shows maybe 10 to 12 percent of no-tillers planting green. Uh, is it going to catch on? Well, it's a great idea. We should have more people <laughs> planting green. It's got advantages. It allows that cover crop to continue growing maybe another week or so after you plant to provide nitrogen or deep rooting, whatever the benefits are, and there's a lot of different benefits. So uh, we would hope that they would plant green. you got people like Bill Lemkel and others that work on planters. There's just no excuse for them. Well, my planter won't handle it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Modern planters will handle it. Yeah. Can I mention, if your listeners are on Facebook, we've got Ohio No-Till Council. Uh, just type in Ohio No-Till without the hyphen, Ohio No-Till Council. I just posted a lot of pictures, uh, in fact, 13 photos of different cover crops that were planted 
for a field day, and then I took pictures uh, mm -hmm. October 1st. Uh, so we've got that information on there. If people want to look at how cover crops look, uh, planted August the 3rd, uh, and we have other information on there, too. We have another Facebook page called uh, Ohio Soil Health and Cover Crops. Just ways for people to learn, uh, many ways to, to learn more, so... You know that's great. Uh, we'll, um, in fact, I'll go look myself, and we'll take a look. So, yeah, one of our farmers, Nathan Brown, started that. A lot of farmers put in their own experiences. There's probably videos and photos of of harvest going on today, and probably planting some cover crops. Hey, this has been fantastic. It's fascinating to hear how you've done. Uh, you've been a true innovator and educator in this field, and and like me, you've followed this for years. And, you know, we've seen no-till acreage go from 3 million acres in 72 to over 100 million today. And it it just feels good to have been part of this and to stayed with it all these years. So I thank you for all you've done for the industry. I agree. And that's the reason, even though I retired eight years ago, I'm still involved. Cause I'm right. <laughs> trying to make a difference and stay connected. All right. Hey, thanks. Uh, take care. Thanks, Frank. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank once more answering a listener inquiry. With the uh, current popularity of cover crops, a reader wrote in and asked how we got away from using cover crops back in the 1940s and 1950s, which reminds me of growing up on a centennial farm about 40 miles north of Detroit in Michigan and where my dad and grandfather planted cover crops almost every year. There's no real reason that I can explain for getting away from using cover crops, except people didn't see the economic value of doing it, or increased acreage on farms led them to not have the time in the fall to seed these crops, which went along with higher yields for corn and soybeans. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Randall Reeder for today's No-Till Insights and Observations. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll consider joining us for the 28th Annual National No-Tillage Conference next year in St. Louis, Missouri, from January 7th through the 10th. Visit notillfarmer.com forward slash NNTC to register, and don't forget to enter the code PODCAST20 at checkout to receive a discount. Again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Topcom Agriculture, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. So please email your questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. For Frank Lesseter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Managing Editor Julia Gerlach. Thank you for listening.